0: Hello and welcome to Test and Code. I'm excited to share this episode with you. On today's episode, we have David Hussman. David is a coach for Agility, an excellent speaker, and runs an agency called DevJam. I learned of David while researching for a PNSQC conference talk. He presented a talk in 2015 titled "How to Build the Wrong Thing Faster and Learn from It," and it's an incredible presentation. Today's interview is a wonderful discussion where David and I look back at all we've learned in XP, TDD, and other Agile methodologies, where things have gone awry, how to bring the value back, and where testing fits into all of this. There's a lot of great discussion here. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed putting this together. We don't have a formal sponsor for this episode, but I'd like to thank Patreon supporters for encouraging me, sometimes with strongly worded tweets. To put out more episodes. Also, thanks to Michael Kennedy for helping with editing costs. You can thank him by visiting training.talkpython.fm and perhaps leveling up your Python skills with a course or two. And last but not least, thank you to everyone who has purchased either a digital copy or physical copy of Python Testing with PyTest. I've been told by many that it's a quick read and improves their testing practices more with every chapter. Now on to the interview. Welcome to Test and Code, a podcast about software development and software testing. This is the Test and Code podcast, and um, today we've got uh, David Hussman. For people that are not familiar with who you are, who is David Hussman and what do you do?
1: Yeah, boy, it's probably one of the the questions I answer more poorly than others. But I, I suppose, like, who am I from a geek perspective is I got into programming, early on you know i started programming in the early 90s and uh i was banging away you know almost 10 years before any of this agile stuff sort of crossed my radar i worked at this really cool small company There was about 14 of us we did medical device work we did uh early gps stuff and we, i did a bunch of digital audio stuff and then i went to work in a big shop in minneapolis one of my friends convinced me i should go make more money and I suddenly it was in with all these people and like it didn't seem like anyone knew what they were doing because there wasn't like just, you know, first principle engineering. And I read Kent Beck's white paper. It was actually, I think, even before Extreme the Extreme Programming book came out and he, he and Ward were doing all this cool stuff at Tektronix. And I thought, wow, that reminds me how I used to work. And that's sort of when I went from being, you know, a full time programmer to like tech lead slash coach. And then I published a few papers. I got invited to the second XP conference in Italy. And that was an awesome conference. It was about 200 people, but everything was on the table. I mean, it was, there was no methodology sponsorships. There was no certification programs. It was a bunch of people, most of which were, I would call them makers, many people would call them programmers. They're trying to figure out how to do things different and better. and so for the last 15 years, that's what I've been doing with people under the name of Agile, although the word Agile has sort of taken sort of a dark turn for me in the last few years because it's become such a commodity. But I love I love making stuff. Turns out for the last chunk of my life, I've been doing that with programming.
0: Okay. Your company is DevJam. Is that correct? Yeah. And And um, how did it grow into like you being a team lead and a coach to having – a company full of coaches and whatever else dev jam does
1: yeah for sure my business card should say david husband accidental businessman you know i mean it's not none of it's wrong it's it grew because i was at a company somewhere and like what i love doing is working with people and working on things and i've never really been sort of a you know like a drive-by you should do this and you should do that i think people learn when you sit down with them so i would sit down and especially early in dev Jam, i was still programming quite a bit and they would be wow that's really cool do you have more people like you and i would be like sure and i ended up just having friends come and work with me and then i had some of those friends that were pretty strong tech leads who also had you know maybe a leadership bent and then they started doing some coaching stuff for me and that's sort of how the company grew up nice okay
0: you're careful to I was looking around um trying to refresh my memory of what all's here. I had written some notes when I watched the uh the so um before we started recording I I mentioned to David that I ran across who he was because I I was asked to talk at a conference called the Pacific Northwest Software Quality Conference. It's in Portland and I spoke in 2016 and in 2015 uh, David spoke there and so I just had picked his uh, video at random just to to try to see what, what it was like to talk at this conference. And um, it was a, a thing, how to build the wrong thing faster and learn from it. and it's a great talk so i'm a, i'll put a link in the show notes but uh and i it, uh, one of the things i liked about it even just was the title because that's what i think of as um agile development is how to build the wrong thing f- faster and learn from it and you're careful on dev jam to not use the word agile too much You'd, even on your uh, twitter profile it says coaching and developing agility so why the separation of agile versus agility?
1: Probably the dumb answer is me trying to make some significant standard or something. But probably realistically, I think when something gets a name, then it's easier for people to claim the thing instead of the behavior associated with it. And that's true with like music movements, philosophy movements, art movements, religious movements. You know, I always think of like Monty Python the meaning of life when they kind of say, I'm not part of the Judeo's people's front. I'm the people's front of Judea. You know, it's, just like, it's just like this absurdist kind of thing of like who you're associated with. So I think when you add, you know, the Y or the L-Y to the end, then it's the act of doing it. Like democracy turns out to be a hard thing to practice because fundamentally you have to be ready to talk and work with people you disagree with. That's To me, that's the card of democracy. So agility is... Not, I'm agile. I, I think it's, and again, this could be just my allergy, dude, but it's interesting if you think about, like, people say, we're doing Scrum, we're doing agile. And in English, the only time we typically use that kind of language is when we're doing something that's discreet. I did the dishes, I'm doing the laundry, I mowed the lawn, you know, they're done. Einstein would have never said, I got to go do some physics, because <laughs> it sounds it sounds so stupid, you know, because science is the nature of of understanding and i like what you said earlier what what's upsetting for me or uh, disconcerting sometimes is that people are now falling prey to the same thing they have with every methodology they assume because they're doing the methodology they're successful and that's sort of never been the truth with the spiral methodology or structured programming or the unified process and i like that you picked that you like the name of that talk because I always feel like this agile stuff has been helpful because it helps me learn. And usually the dimensions of learning might be learning about people, learning about teams, learning about product, learning about technology. And people and product tend to be more difficult than technology and processes. And I think I think that many people are still too sure that because they're getting this stuff done, they're being successful. That's There's a lot of people in the Agile space that I think have frozen on measuring progress instead of product or product learning.
0: It's good. I did glom onto it a little bit because um, in the past few years trying to understand, I was uh, definitely affected by Kent Beck and his writing and XP and test-driven development, but I I think I got it completely wrong. Um, What I learned was something different than what is being taught right now. We had a a barbecue just um, the other day for 4th of July and I had a couple people that came that work in IT world, which I don't, but they were both lamenting that Agile was coming to their company so they couldn't remote work anymore because Agile's against remote work. And I'm like, how? There's nothing in the manifesto for Agile development or anything there that says people can't be in different places so they're just being told that they have to change their behavior not and a process it's just a different process but it's still like holding up process up on a pedestal
1: uh, well they're being told to your last comment they're being told how to do agile that's not how you do agile instead <laughs> of saying yeah i was been joking that people often mistake crowds for collaboration just because people are sitting together doesn't mean they like each other and they're going to do great things but people that do have a good mindset and are good people when they sit together there's less of a barrier of communication but that doesn't mean you can't work in different locations that's that's a classic like you know stupid ends in the bucket of stupid things said in the name of agile
0: so one of the things that i'm having to try to come to grips with and i'm hoping you help me with this is I've probably been not fair, but blaming the consultants for where Agile came to. And yet I admire some of your speaking. How is somebody that's got a consulting company not? You're fighting a a battle, I guess.
1: I like your opening line, blame the consultants. That should be a T-shirt, dude. (laughs) Blame the consultants. Uh, I don't know. know, Again, again, when I started doing this, I wasn't a consultant. I was a tech lead, and I had a small team, and Java was new. And I drank all the Sun Kool-Aid. You know, it's you know, right once, run, run anywhere. And like I looked at all those pictures, Sun cooked up. And then we started using it, and we ran into all these weird problems. And the, some of the problems we smoked out with test-driven and automated tests. And our team had this data modeler that was trying to come up with the the super uber data model for retail and Oracle, and he would just break our stuff all the time. And as soon as we had continuous integration and test automation in place, we just went from stumbling around in the dark to just knowing where the problems were faster. And so I wasn't, as the tech lead on that team, looking for a methodology. I was just trying to be a better leader for the people I was working with, which is what I think Kent and Ward were doing at Tektronix. They're just trying to work in a better way. Then I was with Ward one time, and I was kind of like bitching to him, saying, Ward, are you sort of bummed out that like, what people have done with this neat thing that you guys came up with. And Wirt said to me, I don't know if we'd be here, Dave, if it weren't for Scrum. And I almost like threw up in my mouth. I was like, I can't believe we just said that. His point was, and this is something I've always struggled with, the vast majority of people, I think, need to have a name for something when they're going to change. And they got to be able to latch on to like enough of it so they can say, I'm doing Scrum. But what the consultants in their responsible phases need to do is not get people addicted to that. And that's where things go bad with blame the consultant is the consultant comes in and gives someone a class and then people aren't successful and they blame the people. Well, you didn't do the process right. Well, if you're building the wrong thing and you build a little bit of it faster and you find out it's the wrong thing and you kill that project, that is success. But that's not there's not a lot of rewards for that in the industry.
0: Yeah, okay. You brought up testing, so and since this is um, something I've kind of focused on a lot, I haven't heard you talk too much about where right now in the, in the current model of how you're promoting, hopefully helping people to do things, learn about their product. What is the right role of testing then?
1: Yeah, well, I wanted to do your podcast because I love the name. Naresh Jain, one of the guys in India, has this conference he's done for years called Simple Design and Test. It was a great model. Like everybody that attended the conference had to give a talk. And Naresh came out of like the XP space like I did. But I don't know, Did your question's huge. Like what do I think about testing today? In some ways, some aspects of it are as stupid as it's ever been. You know, there's still people that are like waiting to do all their testing at the end. There's far more people trying to move that stuff into more of a continuous realm. You know, many... A lot of the stuff that's been done in the name of DevOps, to me, it just seems like an evolution of what happened on every Extreme Programming project, except for the tools are better. Where people, I think, are are thinking more. They're not testing is not as much about quality. I did a I did a matrix one time, and I drew columns and rows, and I put in the columns like, what is the nature of the test? What are the tools you use? Who's the audience, and what are the purpose? At the bottom, I kind of stole language from J.B. Rainsberger and others, and I kind of didn't call them unit tests. I called them like micro tests or developer tests. And I think those tests, the purpose of them is they're, they're like by the geeks for the geeks. They are design tools. They help tell the story of the code. And then like the tests above those, I would maybe call them, we tragically still call them regression tests or worse, integration tests. There's a name that needs to be refactored desperately. You know? <laughs> yeah,
0: it doesn't mean anything.
1: Exactly, they have continuous integration, but they still have integration tests. Now, if they have a big system where they're integrating across sub-teams, that's different. But I think of those tests like story tests or product tests or business tests, and they tell the story of the product. And people that have like those two, that kind of mindset, I think are doing some really neat stuff because they're not saying... Let's write more tests or like one of the things that they did in extreme programming, which was good when extreme programming came out, was everything has to be done test driven. But that sort of is like an unfunded mandate, you know, and then in some cases it's not the right way to go. But if you think of test driven development and you replace it with the words like test driven design. Then you start, I think, having much higher order learning. And that's what Kent wrote about in his book, his test-driven book. He said, when I want to learn a new programming language, I write the X unit for that language, which is really cool. If you've ever seen how the story of JUnit, how they wrote JUnit, it's just an exploration of a language. And there's really a nice dissertation, a little mini dissertation on patterns and things. And Kent said, I've heard him say all sorts of things like when I'm stuck, when I don't know what to do next, I just start writing tests. That's a really an interesting statement because I'm sure he also goes to the whiteboard sometimes. But I think he does a lot of his design discovery with test automation. And it makes a lot of sense. If you look at like what Bertrand, Meif- Bertrand or the guy that wrote Eiffel, I forget his last name, Bertrand Meyer, I think. In Eiffel, when you entered a method, you had a pre and a post condition that was part of the language. And if either one of those failed you bopped out of the method and everything rolled back and you put that into eiffel eiffel didn't become popular because it was too complex but that's what i've always thought of was like there's an evolution that happens on a team when the change happens such that you call me over and instead of showing me your code you show me your test because then i don't have to reverse engineer what your intent is i can see here's what you expect, here's the setup, here's the execution, here's the outcomes. And first of all, a lot of times people's ideas aren't good. So like fixing the the code for a bad idea is a bad idea. And instead kind of looking at what they were trying to do, oh, I get what you're trying to do. And then when you look at the code, boy, you can zoom in fast to understand the intent. And that's easier in some languages than others. And I know I took your answer pretty far out, but I think I would sum it up by saying, I think people need to be thoughtful and intentional, mindful, if you will, about what tools they're using for what types of testing for what intent. And if you're trying to do design, then it's like micro tests. It's maybe some kind of X-series testing. But if you're trying to learn about the product, it's not necessarily about more micro tests. It's about tests that are user advocacy tests. Those still are pretty lacking. Too often written some things to selenium still.
0: Well, it's actually something that's very confusing to me because that was that was my first take on. So I came across test driven development when it was called uh, test first programming, and had this idea. And there was I think I wrote read about it in one of like the the wiki pages for from Ward's wiki. C wiki.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I knew. You- Say
0: that. It was like we have to write all these. Normally we, in the waterfall model, which is, I won't get into how it's really unfortunate that Dr. Royce has been blamed for all that. Yes. But we write all the, we design something, we write the software, and then we write all the tests and then it takes a long time to, um, to get those tests to all pass. Well, wouldn't it be great if we had the tests first and then we could just write the code to make the tests pass? But in that model, the tests are not unit tests. The tests are testing the product. And that's actually, that's where I approach, uh, test driven development and everything that related to agility in my life is, that I want to be able to make sure I'm testing the interaction with the, the user and or with an API or something and trying to figure out how to get that right. So it's bizarre to me that there're still people that say they're doing test driven development and then when they're done they hand it off to the QA team to test the product. I think this is also it has to be it must be different with different team sizes. So in a company that has QA departments If you have the developers writing the the end tests, then what does the QA department do? If you've got a smaller company with no QA, trying to get the developers to write both unit tests and end-user tests, that's difficult, I'm sure. So, you know,
1: what went wrong? I think that one time I was in a company and... I kept getting hammered by this guy that I was using QA when I should have been using QC. So I just started running experiments and every one week I would use the word QC all week. Next week I would use the word QA all week, the letters, just to see if anybody actually knew the difference between the two. And to answer your question, when it went wrong is when we started emulating quality control concepts from a manufacturing paradigm. And even those people, when I was a little kid, you had a thing, something that was manufactured and it used to say inspected by number 52 oh yeah and, yeah because that was inspector number 52 at the end of the line and in the manufacturing world they figured out a long time ago that if you're producing a thousand units an hour and inspector 52 inspects two out of that lot of a thousand or five or some statistically significant set and they're wrong you have a thousand waste so, if you can get the inspector to do more continuous inspection, then you have less waste. You find the problems earlier and blah blah blah, you know, stop the line at Toyota and all that kind of stuff. Well, in the software world, it was sad that we adopted a physical concept, a physical construct for our idea of quality first, we'll manufacture everything, then we'll throw it at the testing group and that's that's still pretty deep in a lot of companies' ethos instead of like. What you were talking about is where my headspace is. Is like, we should move that testing up sooner. We should do it more frequency on smaller things. That's where it gets tough, is if you do it on too small a thing and you're trying to do product testing, you miss the mark. But there are still some tests that I think need to be automated tests that need to be written that are not user-facing, that have to do with some construct deep in, in the code that's complex. That's what I mean. I think automated unit tests tell the story of the code. And if you're doing test first in that space, then you're doing design with automation. And that's, to me, that's the most pleasing way to write tests. You know, someone else, here's a great Kent Beck quote. Someone asked Kent, how do you know how many tests to write? Kent just said, I just keep writing tests till I'm not scared anymore. <laughs> I was like...
0: Oh, that's great.
1: It's a great answer, isn't it? Because... He didn't say 65% coverage. And it's it's such a great answer because it's contextually significant. Maybe I'm working on something that's greenfield. I don't even know if it's gonna be successful. The idea of full test coverage can actually be a very poor investment, but it has to be good enough. And so if you apply Kent's Standard, I'm not scared anymore because I've written the tests that I think are gonna be either user advocacy tests or the tests are going to tell the story of the code where there's a need to tell the story with automation. I love our conversation right now. I fear a little bit, dude, that like with the, I was going to say the demise, but let's just say the waning of extreme programming, that a lot of that stuff got lost. I do see people in the DevOps community sort of rediscovering a lot of what XP was in 2000 which is wonderful. You know, I don't really care where people learn it as long as they adopt a responsible, like I think Kent's one, Kent once called it like responsive or responsible engineering. I thought that was a nice term.
0: Yeah, actually, you um, you guys take that and have a, a training course around that, don't you? Uh, yep. Yeah, so um, the... So a lot of it is just people just trying to get shit done, get the product. And like you said, uh, the so you're not scared anymore, so you can go off on the weekend and not worry about whether or not you're going to get a call in the middle of the night. I like the idea of the test until you're not scared anymore. It covers a lot of stuff.
1: I tell you, Kenton Ward, those guys are like, they're wizards, and they're like little, they're little pithy wizards. They just Every time I'm with one of the two of them, I walk away with two little things like that that I think, my life is now better. I'm, I'm a better programmer because I listen to Ken talk for 30 minutes.
0: Yeah. One of my disagreements with a lot of this this group of people, though, is an idea that you should teach people the right way to do things at a, just as a, a micro level and assume that they're going to become an expert and grow and know when to break the model. Like, for instance, uh, the... You brought up Scrum. I read about Scrum, and one of the things I loved about the Scrum model was this notion that you change the process to work for your team on a regular basis. And yet, we have a lot of people saying, oh, you're not doing it right because you're doing it different than my team. Well, of course, if you're doing it right, two teams are doing it different.
1: Uh, And the only measure of right is that, you know, it's like I heard someone once say, if your product sucks, so does your process okay what bugs me is when this is not if you want me to get dark a little bit you know most large companies i'm associated with now have some kind of agile council or agile coaching committee or agile adoption crew or blah 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 their transformation whatever metaphor they've chosen and the worst of them are walking around doing exactly what i've seen pmos do for years and years Make everybody march the same way. Therefore, we'll have more marchers and we'll win more wars or whatever. they're I don't even know what the analogy is. But and they fail to go in and look at a team and say, look, at these people are practicing civil disobedience. And they have found a better way to do it. And if they're more successful than our other teams who are, quote, unquote, doing Scrum, instead of running them down, we should figure out what they're doing. Because it might be something that's unique to our company that isn't in the Scrum book because the Scrum book's not written about our company. And that kills when, especially when really thoughtful, passionate people are crushed by the Scrum hammer. It's not even really Scrum's fault. It's just anyone that turns out, like you said, where the methodology becomes more important than the impact that it produces. Yeah, and that's um,
0: another, and that's where like the, um, we haven't brought this up yet, but the dude's law is, uh, perfect thing. You're a brilliant person for coming up with that. So dude's law is, if I'm getting this right, the V equals W over H or value equals Y over how. And if you do the math, your process or your mechanics, if you spend too much time on that without spending more time on figuring out why you're doing what you're doing, then you're going to lose. Doing the right thing is what... I'm probably getting this wrong, so can you... Do you have an elevator pitch for uh, the... uh... No,
1: you're doing it perfect. I mean, the nature of... If you imagine you had an equation that says V equals W divided by H, the nature of learning is how. I used to teach guitar lessons. And when people can't even strum a chord they got to just focus on the mechanics, how, and you teach them how to play a few chords. But the reason they came to guitar lessons in the first place is probably to play a song. That's the why. So in music, it's very different because it's so, you're, it's so immersive that as soon as you can make it through a song, you go and play the song, you damage everyone, your family has to listen to you hack through some horrible tune that you can barely play. But you made it through a song, and you're not like obsessed with G, C, D, A minor, and F anymore you've learned how to play the chords the software world it's not as obvious so like people get so obsessed with how are we doing the process that they forget why they're doing the process and you see i see it all the time at companies where they their agile success is scorecarded based on the the number of practices they're doing it's instead of the impact those practices are having and if you take very concretely like a daily stand-up The daily stand-ups I was in, we just went around and talked to each other. And sometimes you didn't have anything to say and you just said pass. That was the difference between like XP and Scrum. And Scrum, they implemented the three questions. And people end up kind of saying, yesterday I was in meetings all day. Today I'm in meetings all day. No blockers. And I'm like, thanks for sharing. (laughs) I'm glad I spent my morning listening to six people say that. And when I'm poaching... I might call one of those people out gently and say, well, what were those meetings about? You know, and then someone might start saying, oh, yeah, well, we we're working on the, these stories and we were having a really hard time with it. And someone else was, might say, oh, well, I once worked on those stories. I could help you. Hey, let's get together right after the stand-up. And then that's the idea of that meeting, is make connections, surface issues, and do something about it. But when people follow the ritual, it's, it's all the emphasis on how and I just sort of feel like when I was teaching guitar, I wanted my students to eventually never come back because they were good musicians, not because they became, became bored with practicing, you know, because they became players.
0: I really like this uh, music analogy because there's more to it. I think that you, you, we can take this a, a lot farther. One of the things is that in order to be able to get master a lot of the technique. You have to care about it. And in order to care about it, you've got like this feedback loop of, uh, I made it, I wrote, like performed a complete song or a part of a song. And it feels good to have other people say, wow, that was really good. Awesome. And then you can build up from there and you want to get better. You want to get different, learn different techniques. And it's something that actually I'm learning now as a, I'm growing as a team lead in understanding that, People are not experts at everything, even if they're experts at something. To use this sort of a feedback loop, even in small scale, so if I ask somebody to do something new that they haven't done before, even if they're awesome at something else, I've got to be able to give them something small enough that they can get the whole way through, even if they're not quite doing it right, and then have that success, and then they can both of us together or the team as a whole can improve the process, but making that whole feedback loop or performance uh, shorter and more frequent, I think that's, that's also part of what why some of the uh, continuous stuff works that we don't really talk about.
1: It was really interesting. Like we we sort of went from continuous integration early on in XP. My experience was we went from continuous integration and we thought, hey, this is good let's start doing like continuous deployment we used to practice this thing called nuke and pave which means every time the build ran we would wipe out the environment to the best of our abilities nuke it and repave it so that the environments were deterministic and we started taking more and more control but we were still in the too early 2000s stuck with physicality we couldn't just drop vms and it was hard to just wipe out the only place i ever did it was on this project for the government where we were using like early prototype blade servers, and we would just wipe a whole blade server and blow down a whole new instance of Linux onto the thing. And we started using that language continuous. It was continuous integration, continuous deployment, and then our goal was like continuous readiness. And I love that language, because it's like it's certainly what the DevOps world is doing. Again, it's just there's way more flexibility. But Probably, if we would have put another word in there, it would be like continuous performance or something. You know, like the gaming groups that I've worked with, the the fun gaming groups. It's pretty common once a week at a minimum where people just shut down and everybody plays the game. You know, and so it's like playing a song or something. Everybody experiences what it's like. That doesn't happen at banks. The software, the Java geeks don't sit down and say, hey, let's play banking for two hours. You know, they have no idea what it's like to be some branch manager that's trying to help someone set up some account somewhere, and the branch manager is apologizing because the person has to sign six different times when they have only to sign once because some back-end system is not correlated to another one or something like that. I I think that there – I agree with you, dude. There's so many parallels, but the one of the strongest parallels is that very few people – can look at a music score and hear it. And that's what a really great composer can do. They're supposed to be able to actually look at the score and pretty much hear the orchestra. There's even fewer of us, and I'm not one of them, that can look at a pile of code and say, man, I bet that's gonna really feel great when it runs. And the tests help us say, I think it's gonna run. And we're stumbling towards more analytics that are more automated with more automated tests that try to express, yep, it's a good experience, but we're not very good at that yet. That's probably a better answer If your testing question is, I feel like we're stilted a lot of times with the tools we have to do automated product learning with test automation. It's tools like, like, what is your favorite tool in that space? What is your favorite tool for product testing, automation?
0: Right now, it's PyTest.
1: But you just use it at whatever level, right?
0: Yeah, I use it at every level. My favorite way to interact with any software that we're using is through, now I can't remember if it was Kent or somebody else that came up with, um, no, I know it was somebody else, but the subcutaneous model just the idea that even if you don't have if so some products are are designed where the user interface sits on top of a an API level layer and if you don't have that if you've got like a a web interface well there's still now we're moving towards rest interfaces so it's a programmatic layer that you can do everything you can with the user interface just it's easier to write tests for and it's easier to automate things i also grew up in like the unix world where it's this idea of, I don't know how people are going to use this tool, but I'm going to make make it so that people can put, plug things together. So make one tool, make it do something good. And I don't know how it's going to be used, but I'm going to try to make it flexible. And... uh for a long time, I was the weirdo in the team that when we would pick a new product, I would say, well, where's the command line interface? And they're like, oh, oh no, it's a web interface. We we don't need a command line interface. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm going to want to hook it up to our build server or something. And so it, it better have a command line interface. Uh, but. As far as user interfaces are concerned, I've I'm, I'm, uh, been fortunate enough to work, uh, like Kent and others at Tektronix, I work on instruments a lot, so we are guaranteed to have all of our functionality is programmatically accessible. The user interface for people is for people and fingers is not necessarily the primary interface. You work
1: at Tektronix right now?
0: No, I work at a, I started at Agilent or HP and Agilent, and uh, now I work for uh, uh, Rogen Schwartz, which is a, uh, a German company that in, in a similar space as Tektronix.
1: Yeah. And it's like, that's really neat. I mean, like the people I know that have worked, I, I cut my teeth working on hardware, software, firmware combinations. And we were always trying to figure out ways to write automated tests, especially when there was medical devices, because you have to do the testing. You don't get to not do the testing. And yeah. either, I've always joked for years and years, the best way to get automation is to make an engineer do things manually. And then you get automation. It just happens, you know. And when test when I learned Test Driven, to me, it replaced the crazy set of Post-its that I had on my desk or all the crap I was trying to do with like a main method in C++, you know, and in other languages, it was like, holy smokes! Look at all this power I have, and I was blown away by the number of programmers I met from 2000 to 2003 that would just say things to me like, "Well, I don't need to write tests; I write good code." These are dudes whose code didn't even compile, and you'd go sit with them, you'd watch them work, and you'd I'd think, boy, if you could just get past your ego and see that one of the things that's brilliant about like test driven or using tests as design tools is all the code you don't write that potentially has bugs. You know, one of my favorite jokes I heard 10 years ago was the only code with no code, no bugs is no code. And like people don't take into account that if you don't write it, you don't have to fix it. I mean, that's fundamental in the whole lean space. And test-driven when it's a design tool, that was a funny joke early on. Kent said, I taught my daughter how to pair program with me. She sat next to me, and every three minutes she said, Dad, do you have a test for that? <laughs> because when you're forced to justify your designs with automated tests, you do less stupid stuff because you are it's that real-time design. I always thought pair programming, when it's not done dogmatically, which is all about the how, when it's done based on the why, is like real-time design with someone else. And that's why I think saying you have to do it all the time feels weird and dogmatic. But my programming history, especially in the mid-'90s when I was working on multiple versions of C++ and multiple operating systems, is sitting with someone else is exactly what we did anytime there was a hard problem. You know, yeah, We didn't use tests as design tools. If we would have, we would have moved even faster. But that's what you always did. So, you know, Martin Fowler once said, "If the hardest part of programming was typing, pair programming would be a bad idea." You know, but it's not. The hardest part of programming is thinking and the design work.
0: I like the well, okay. So, I like the idea of using pair programming when you're stuck on something or when when you need to design something or something. I, the I admit that I've been very reluctant to even embrace pair programming at all because it's sort of a joke, but sort of not really that I got into programming, not because I really love being around people. Actually, you brought up Martin Fowler, which I'm glad you did because he's the, he's the uh, person to give credit for, for subcutaneous model. This has been a really good talk and I, we kind of meandered around. What are you mostly thinking about now? When I first tried to get you on, I know there was, you were promoting like story tests.
1: I'm super disillusioned by Agile as an industry. That's kind of uninteresting. Probably any movement. I'm sure at one point, you know, anyone that was involved in early grunge rock in Seattle went, Oh, now they're all just sellouts. So I could just be a crabby old man. That's that's with that cap. <laughs> I'm I'm enamored with the stuff that's going on in the DevOps space. Um, because I think they're rediscovering collaboration and putting it forward again like I think was a strong component of extreme programming I think they're doing a lot to sort of like solve the problems that are solvable so like we should be able to pipeline stuff and deploy it and not worry we should have enough confidence on the other end of the spectrum I'm really intrigued by a lot of the work that I would say is happening outside the code I think one of the areas where extreme programming did not evolve well, and it's not a mistake. It's just, it just it, the people that started it let it go. Is that assuming that the stories you wrote are the right stories across time and space is ignorance. It's naive, maybe is a nicer way to put it. But I think we need to set up like sort of a, you know, like a continuous discovery, which feeds sort of a continuous delivery. And most of the DevOps stuff is kind of down in the continuous delivery space. But what I always saw, if you take a very simple example, you have a team of 10 to 12, and some people are very close to the code, and some people are closer to the market. On some teams, they call the person that sits with everybody a product owner, even though they don't really know anything about the market, which is a problem in Scrum. But you have some people that are thinking about, hey, where should we go? the discovery spot. And some people are thinking about how do we get there? The delivery side of it. I think that if more teams looked at like their bandwidth just arbitrarily say for an iteration, and I don't get too wound up about iterations. And you said for the next N days, should we spend more of our time in discovery or more of our time in delivery? Then we'll really have the next evolution where some of the programmers shouldn't be writing more code about things that are not really validated ideas. That's a waste of time. And in you know, the lean space, you're building up an inventory of code, more code, more problems, more complexity. You know, it's just, it's sort of a negative way to look at it. But there's always a handful of developers, maybe maybe a couple, that are really passionate, they want to talk to people, they want to engage with customers. So why is it bad for that person to maybe spend more of their time running small experiments outside of the delivery space so that we could be a little bit more sure that that is the right idea before we just line up the code and deploy it into production? And we don't do that because deep, deep in the ethos of most people wielding code, especially places where they say the word IT, is more programmers writing more code means more progress it's just such a myth it's a deep myth and you know validating that what you're doing is right is what feeds more progress and then more learning and potentially more value but you have to figure out where whether your next best investment is to learn outside the code or inside the code and that's where like xp i think what we did that was good is we came up with this idea of refactoring the code and keeping the system healthy but there was times where as they said in aliens you know we should have just lifted off and nuked the site from orbit you know it's time to get rid of it it's crap it's a bad idea we got to just kill it we got to sequester it or chernobyl it or sort of whatever but there's still too many people that are sprinting away getting stuff done in a sprint and The safe world is probably even worse because they're doing it with multiple teams and all they've done is like synchronized and optimized potentially building the wrong thing faster. That's why I named the talk how to build the wrong thing faster because I wanted to plant the seed with people to say just because you got stuff done doesn't mean it's right. That's where that metaphor that you used that I think is powerful but dangerously powerful that gets stuff done. Um, That's good if it's the right stuff. If it's not the right stuff, you're better off not doing anything because you're not producing wrong code.
0: I try to remind people that agility has a meaning outside of software also. And, And, And part of that is being able to change direction and to not get too far into some code without being willing to throw it away and start over. And for a long time, that's how I taught new developers on a team. I said, I'm I'm going to ask you to do something, and then we're going to throw it away, and you're going to do it again. Just so that they experience that feeling that you may have spent like three weeks building something, but you can do it again in like two days. Because the person at the end is way more qualified to do that code than the person that started. A big resistant I have for a lot of the unit tests is... Having that be extra resistance to change, when people aren't willing to change design because it would be too difficult to change the tests.
1: Yeah, that's sad, huh?
0: Yeah, that's that's a really big a big red flag that you've got tests at the wrong level. That's if you're not right. if you're not willing to change them,
1: or you've just waited you've waited too long to make the change. Now it's you know too big to fail stuff. You reminded
0: me of like doing these experiments of trying if we're doing the right product. The most fun I've had is when we get to work very early in a technology where I'm working with another company, so two companies are working together, and they don't really know what the answer is. And you've got engineers on both sides saying, Well, like let's put this measurement in place and see if that helps us with the product we're trying to make. And then we'll say something like we can give you a, a like alpha release like in two weeks, but it may have huge bugs and it might even crash. And they're like, we don't care right now. We just want to see if we're going in the right direction. And yeah, I love that. I think more more of our software and hard, even hardware now can be done with, uh, let's try try doing something and, and see if we're going in the right direction first.
1: And what you just said though is so pivotal, it's probably another good closer, is that so many people that are saying we're doing agile have very much a constructionist ideology. We gotta get stuff done. It's like, that's good if what you're doing is very known. You get it done, you're successful. But if you paint a continuum, which I probably did in that talk, where on one end is construction and the other end is experimentation, the closer you are to experimentation the less it matters how much you got done what matters is how much you learned and it's interesting to listen to talk because i grew up like you did working on things that weren't solved or that were new and the nature of learning is not measuring units completed you know and i was just talking to a friend in the aerospace industry and she was lamenting the fact that the agile people were coming into her r&d team and they were trying to treat it like the it side of the company and she's like I got five brilliant PhDs and they're not going to pair a program and I'm not going to let them because it's a stupid idea. And <laughs> some of the problems we're working on aren't going to be done in two hours or two days. And I was explaining to her like the problem is, is that people are measuring progress instead of measuring learning or like eliminating uncertainty that language the lean startup people put out. That was nice language. It was neat to see Kent gravitate towards that lean startup crowd. I thought
0: that was yeah, interesting. The lean is, um, is is a very good thing. And that's where I think those are good lessons there too. Yeah. This is getting a little long in the tooth, but I, I really appreciate um, you coming on. And thanks a ton for taking the, the time out of your day and, and talking with me. And I've really enjoyed it and learned a lot. My pleasure, man. Thank you for listening. The show notes with links to items we talked about is at testencode.com. If you like the show, please spread the word. Tell a friend or colleague about the show, or email them a link. Rate it on iTunes or Overcast or on whatever you're listening to this on. Let me know if there are other topics you'd like to have covered. Reach me on Twitter at Brian Aukin or the show at Test Podcast or at Testing Code. Thanks a lot.